And you may be seated. If you have his living and powerful word this morning, I want to invite you to open with me to the gospel of Mark chapter 2. So Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And welcome to week 6 of our miracles series where we are walking through um, the miracles of Jesus. And we are almost to the halfway point, but not quite yet. But just, just think about this. For nearly 30 years, the one Jesus himself who had crafted the universe with his voice crafted furniture with his hands. I, I, maybe you've never asked the question, was Jesus a good carpenter? I know Jordan did one time. We had that conversation one, one night. How good of a carpenter was Jesus? Did he just make birdhouses? You know, what did he make um, from that standpoint? But we can know, based on the authority of God's word, that if Jesus could handle the big things like salvation, he could probably handle the little things like tables. And um, therefore, he was probably really good at what he did. No crooked table legs ever came out of the carpenter shop um, in, in Nazareth. He was just good at what he did. But Jesus was more than just a carpenter. He was also, at the same time, God in the flesh. And all that Christ was was hidden in him for nearly three decades. And yet, all of that changed when Jesus, following the timetable of his heavenly Father, stepped onto the stage of his public ministry and revealed himself not only to 12 men, not only to a small group who followed them, but really revealed himself to the world. He performed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle that, point, that pointed to the fact um, that no one could deny, and yet they denied it. Um, he was God. He was God. Just think about what a miracle is. We've said from the very beginning that a miracle is what happens when the unexplainable runs into the undeniable. So a miracle is what happens when the unexplainable runs into the undeniable. Or C.S. Lewis put it this way, a miracle is more than something unusual, though in ordinary speech we might call such events miracles. A true miracle is something beyond man's intellectual or scientific ability to accomplish. He puts it this way, it is natural, or it is not natural, excuse me, it is supernatural. So a miracle is not a natural event, it is a supernatural event. A miracle is an event, whether in the heart, or in the mind, or in our body, or in nature, or in the world, that would not have come about had not God supernaturally intervened. And this is what we're talking about, God supernaturally intervening in the process of natural cause and effect. Then think about this. What is the purpose of these miracles? What's the point of it? And Charles Ryrie put it this way. The main purpose of miracles was to teach, to reveal. Christ used miracles to demonstrate his deity, to support his claims of being the Messiah, and to serve as illustrations of deeper spiritual truths. But the miracles also remind us of the consequences of sin. Sickness, blindness, death. And of the power of the Lord to do something about those consequences. So miracles should remind us that sin has consequences. Whether it be sickness, paralysis as we're going to look at today. Um, death. And yet Jesus has power over all of those consequences. And then think about this. What is the most distinct benefit that Christianity has to offer the world? So what's the best thing that Christianity offers to us? What is it that Christianity offers that no other religion does? And we're here this morning saying that it's not just morality. It's not just love. It's not just peace and tranquility. 
The reality is that Christianity addresses the greatest need of man, which begs the next question, what is our greatest need? What is your greatest need? What is my greatest need? And understand this, your greatest need and my greatest need is not just to escape the effects of physical defects or physical illnesses in this life. That is not our greatest need. The greatest need that you have and the greatest need that I have is to escape the wrath of God forever. That's our greatest need. That is what we need most. In fact, if we're not careful, we'll be satisfied with a physical thing in this life and yet never have the wrath of God removed from us, and that will be our eternity. Our greatest need is to escape God's wrath now and forever. So now let us turn to the Word of God, and we're going to look at a very familiar story. If you grew up in church, you've probably seen this story on a flannel board um, back in, in the day. Um, this is a story that most of us are very familiar with. If, if not, you'll get it and catch on pretty quick. But I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand as we honor God's Word, if you can. And we're going to read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 together. And it says this, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. Lord, we come before you, the one who is omnipotent. You have all control over all things, and just help us to understand that today. While at the same time, God, recognizing and remembering what our greatest need is and forever will be. And Lord, you meet our secondary needs, but God, also in your grace, you have met our greatest need in and through your Son. God, just speak to people all across this room today in ways that only you can, by your Spirit, through your Word. May we all just be pointed more and more to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So get the picture. I know this is a very familiar story, but just think about this. A crowd is crammed into a house. The place is packed. It's overflowing out the door with people. Inside, Jesus is preaching a message to a group of people who are just trying to figure out who he is. They just want to know who this guy is. Suddenly, four men show up carrying their paralyzed friend, and they want to get inside, but no one's budging. No one's giving up their spot. Therefore, they're not getting in. 
So the friends have to come up with a creative idea, a creative way of getting their friend to Jesus. And we can only imagine their conversation. Just think about the first friend saying, hey, guys, I think we should carry our friend up to the roof. And the second saying, that's a terrible idea. Jesus isn't on the roof. He's in the house. And the first friend, of course, responding, yeah, I know that, but let's go up there and take the roof off. To which the third friend says, we're not roofers, you dummy. What are we going to do? And the fourth finally says, well, unless you guys have a better idea, let's go up there and get to work. So they go up and they get to work. And just imagine this. Imagine being in the house, listening to Jesus. All of a sudden, you hear um, these loud footsteps above you. And then you hear all kind of noises. And then dirt begins to fall. First of all, it's just a little bit of dirt and then a lot of dirt. And you're dodging dirt. Everybody else in the house is dodging dirt. Even Jesus himself is dodging dirt while he's trying to speak. You can just imagine the homeowner of this house screaming, what are you guys doing to my roof? The insurance company will not cover this. What in the world is happening? Then suddenly the sun starts peering through. By now, Jesus has completely lost control. He has lost the attention of everyone in the house. More dirt falls, tiles are removed until a massive hole appears in the roof. In fact, the original text here in the Greek says that they literally unroofed the roof. So they unroofed the roof is the picture that we get in the original Greek. Once this hole is established, there's a long pause as everybody waits to see what in the world is about to happen. That's when a, a mat likely tied um, by all four corners is lowered. On it lies a paralyzed man, and it lowered right to the feet of Jesus. No one speaks a word, whether inside the house, outside the house, or above the house. No one is saying anything. I can just imagine Jesus looking down at this paralyzed man and looking up at his friends. And I, I don't know everything that he saw in their face, but I do know according to the word of God, he saw faith. He saw faith. He saw faith in them. Then, of all things, Jesus looks at this paralyzed man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Which, let's admit, that's a bit odd, right? When you think about it, that's kind of odd because that doesn't seem to be the issue. The issue is this guy can't walk. And Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. And we don't know all the details here. We don't know if anyone else spoke in this moment. What we do know is in that day, the belief was that a person's physical suffering was oftentimes associated with personal sin. So everyone in that house would have viewed this paralyzed man as a great sinner. How else could they explain this terrible situation that happened to him? We don't know if this paralysis was caused by this man's sin or if he was born this way. All we know is that Jesus, Jesus makes an, a pronouncement that astonishes the crowd. It ticks off the scribes. This man has sinned, and Jesus claims that he can forgive him. Which leads the scribes to question in their hearts, who does he think he is? And then they say, we know who he is. He's a blasphemer, and he deserves to die. And Jesus, get this, knowing what they're thinking, they're not saying it out loud. Jesus knows what they're thinking, looks at them and says, hey, guys, what, what's easier to say? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, get up and walk? But that you know that I can do both, get up and walk. 
And just imagine, to the amazement of the crowd in the home, the disgust of the, the scribes sitting on the floor, and the pure delight of these four guys up on the roof looking in, this man jumps up, takes off, take, picks up his bed, and walks out of the home. Just imagine the scene. Don't, sometimes we know this story, we're too familiar with it, right? We're too familiar that we don't put ourselves in this situation of just the absolute astonishment that must be going on in that moment. This is a story that we're pretty familiar with, but what I want to do over the next few minutes is I want us to go beneath the service a little bit. Maybe to places that we didn't hang out at in children's church back in the day or places that we don't normally go or maybe places that you haven't been in a while or maybe this is just um, where you spend your time. This is going to be just, just old stuff to you, but I want to look at three truths today related to Jesus' ability to heal the broken. Understanding that the biggest issue that this paralyzed man faced was not his paralyzed condition, but was his brokenness before God. In the same way, our greatest need is not our physical conditions, whatever they might be, but our standing as broken people before a holy God. So the first truth I want us to unpack this morning is this. The needs of man are urgent. The needs of man are urgent. So we're introduced to this man who's paralyzed, and yet, praise God, he has pretty good friends who bring him to Jesus. They lower him down, and the first thing Jesus says is, Son, your sins. Now, I'll just stop there. I won't give away the rest as we just did, but Son, your sins. Just think about this. The urgent needs of this man. He was paralyzed. We don't know how severe his paralysis was, we know it was bad enough that he was obviously confined to a, a bed. His physical need affected all parts of his life, and he needed others in his life to help him in every way. And it would seem kind of obvious, right, what Jesus was supposed to do. I mean, from our standpoint, a paralyzed man is lower to Jesus. Jesus is supposed to look at him, say, get up. He goes out, keeps preaching, other people are saved. That's what Jesus is supposed to do. But that's not what he does. It's strange that Jesus doesn't do that. As Jesus looks at this man, yes, Jesus sees his condition. And Jesus understands that his condition is related to sin. Jesus hates the effects of the fall. Do we understand that? Every sickness, every pain, every suffering, every terrible diagnosis that we have is because, not just because maybe we sin personally, but because sin is in this world. And because sin is in this world, there is pain, there is suffering, there is sickness, and there is paralysis. And Jesus hated, Jesus hated what sin had done to this man, but even more, Jesus hated what sin was doing to his heart. Therefore, Jesus went beyond just his physical body and Jesus realized that there was a deeper issue at work in this man. There was a deeper brokenness. There were deeper effects of sin. There were there was a deeper need. And that's exactly where Jesus' eyes always go. That's what the heart of Christ does. We look at the outward appearance. Jesus looks at the heart. Jesus doesn't just see a man that's ravaged by a devastating injury jesus sees a man that's ravaged by iniquity he's ravaged by sin and again we don't know if his suffering was directly related to any sin but what we do know is that he was a sinner and we know that his ultimate need was not just healing from god his ultimate need was holiness before god 
Let me say it again. His ultimate need was not just healing from God. His ultimate need was holiness before God. And this is the ultimate need of all of our lives. Meaning, our ultimate need is never physical. Our ultimate need is always spiritual. That's our ultimate need. It's always spiritual. When sin entered this world, so did suffering, so did pain, death, and sorrow. Therefore, every headache we experience, every body ache we endure, every injury, and some of us, like myself and Jared, are more injury prone than others, but every injury that we um, endure, and just think about this, every cancer diagnosis, every funeral service testifies that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And our ultimate problem is that we are separated from God by sin and we live in a world that is full of suffering. We're separated by God or from God by our sin and we live in a world that's filled with suffering. Therefore, our deepest need is not more medicine. Our deepest need is not more education. Our deepest need is not more love or more justice or more peace. Our deepest need is not even financial security. The deepest need of every person who has ever breathed or every person who will breathe is grace. Our deep need is grace. Forgiving, empowering, delivering, life-changing, amazing grace. That is what we need. That is our urgent need. We need His grace. Praise God, He is gracious. Needs of man are urgent. Secondly, the power of Christ is ultimate. The power of Christ is ultimate. So let me say this, highlighting this picture of disease and sickness and pain. And let me just begin by saying this. Jesus, or all those things do not get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. Cancer doesn't get the last word over our lives. Jesus gets the last word over our lives. Doctors don't get the last word over our lives. Jesus gets the last word. Even our friends, as optimistic or pessimistic as they might be, do not get the last word over our lives. Jesus does. And even in his infinite wisdom, he chooses to take us, his children who have lived faithfully for him, to himself. He still gets the last word. And we praise God and believe that that last word will be well done, good and faithful servants. Jesus gets the last word. Don't miss it. But just think about the power of Christ here. In Mark 2.10, Jesus acknowledges or addresses himself or calls himself the Son of Man. This is the first of 14 times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, a title that will be associated with Jesus' um, suffering, humiliation, and death, yet it goes deeper than that. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. When Jesus talked about himself, he would call himself the Son of Man. And this came from the book of Daniel. If you're able, turn over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Daniel chapter 7, there's an amazing picture that Daniel sees, a vision that Daniel gets. It's beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's amazing, just glorifying of God. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says this, Halfway through, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, Jesus, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall, shall not be destroyed. 
So therefore, the Son of Man was not just merely a humble reference to Jesus' humanity. It was a powerful statement of His authority. He has all authority, all dominion, all power. In fact, think about this. The first thing we see here is Jesus opening His mouth and preaching in Mark 2. All through the Gospels, when Jesus preached, everybody said, no one has ever preached or spoken like this guy. No one speaks with the authority that He speaks with. Jesus spoke with authority and then jesus looks at this man and says son your sins are forgiven again authority this man is laying on the ground before jesus all eyes are on both of them everyone is waiting to see what is jesus going to do is jesus going to look up at the friends and get onto them for tearing up this guy's roof is jesus going to make this guy wait for him to finish preaching and then deal with him Is Jesus going to heal him at all? What is Jesus going to do? And then think about this question. What did Jesus do? And what he did is he did the most unexpected thing possible. He looks down at this man who was paralyzed, who could not walk. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And let me just say this. No other religious leader says that. No one else says that. Meaning Muhammad doesn't say that, Krishna doesn't say that, Buddha doesn't say that. They don't say your sins are forgiven. Let me tell you what they say. We've uncovered this process by which you can go through. And if you do this ritual and this routine and go through this suffering and maybe have this potential of reincarnations and pay God back, maybe, just maybe, God will forgive you in the end. That's what they say. And yet here Jesus says, forgiveness? Yeah, I can do that. And I can do it right now. That's what he says. And just in case you're you're missing it, when Jesus says you are forgiven, that's that's the big E on the eye chart where Jesus is saying, I am God. You know, I can't see much in the eye chart. I always say E because I know it's got to be up there somewhere. That's the big E on the eye chart where Jesus is saying, I am God. And so what we know, according to Mark 2, is there are these scribes that are in the room. And what we know about scribes are they are experts of the law. They are theologians. They are lifelong members of the Baptist church. They know it all. And because they are experts of the law, they know two things. They know that all sin is ultimately against God. Meaning this, no matter how how much our sin might be horizontal, our sin is always vertical. Before our sin is horizontal, before we sin against anybody, we are ultimately sinning first against God. So before our sin is horizontal against any brother and sister, our sin is always vertical, always against God. So they know that. And then secondly, they know that only God and God alone has the authority to forgive sin. So when we look at the Old Testament, we see in the Old Testament, here's a good question for us. In the Old Testament, did God ever forgive sin? So in the Old Testament, yes. God, that was not a trick question. Some of you are like, I'm not, not doing it. Not today, Micah. You got me last week. Not, not today, but no, yes, in the Old Testament, God forgave sin. Turn with me real quick to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. I want, to, I want to show you something. How God forgave sin in the Old Testament. This is a story of, of David, because David needed a lot of forgiveness. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13, and when you get there, again, I want you to know I'm not making this stuff up. 12, uh, 2 Samuel 12, 13, it says this, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But do you see the difference? 
Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. Jesus says, I have put away your sin. There's a difference. Nathan, the Lord has done this. Jesus, I'm doing this. I have put away your sin. This wasn't a misunderstanding. Jesus was not being misunderstood here. Jesus was saying very clearly, I can forgive sin because I'm God. And the scribes understood very clearly. Therefore, they said, he's blaspheming and he deserves death. Now, how do we know that? In Leviticus chapter 24, and you can turn there if you, if you want, or you can just trust me here, but you can write it down and go look at it later. Leviticus 24, 15, and 16, God had already declared this. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. So what these scribes knew is this guy's claiming to be God. According to the word of God, he deserves death. So let's go find some stones and let's get this over with quickly. And yet Jesus looks at them. And he knows that all of this isn't going on out loud. It's going on in their minds and in their hearts. And Jesus addresses what they're thinking. Once again, another sign that he's pretty powerful and that he is God. And Jesus says, why do you question these things in your heart? What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. So think about that question. What is easier to say? What is easier to say? On the surface, it's a lot easier to tell someone you're forgiven. Why? Because that's invisible. It's invisible. We can't always see that. Now, of course, we can argue effects and results of that, but we can't see that it's an invisible thing. Whereas if you tell someone, get up and walk, and they don't do it, you're a fraud. So in one sense, on a, on a surface level, it's a lot easier to tell someone their sins are forgiven. Yet on a much deeper level, it's much harder to forgive sin because only God can do that. So only God can forgive sin. So Jesus says, so that you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin. He looks at the paralyzed man and says, hey, get up, go home. Just imagine this. The guy jumps up, picks up his bed, and leaps out of the house. I, mean, I can just see him high-fiving everybody, just jumping, leaving the house. And here's the beautiful thing. Here's the point. Jesus did the miracle that they could see so that they might know that he had the power to do the miracle they could not see. He did what they could see to show that he has the power to do what they could not see. And we praise God and we give glory to God for his healing in this way. What a tremendous, amazing miracle. But let me say this. It only lasted for a short season. And what I mean by that is this. This dude that was healed by Jesus, he's been dead for 2,000 years. So he, he walked... He jumped, he leapt, probably went and played soccer somewhere, ran a marathon, did all these things he could never do, and then he died. And then he died. If he had spent 50 years on this earth after that moment walking, and yet he died in his sins, all he would have to look forward to is wrath forever. Yet, praise God, that's not this guy's story. This guy's story isn't Jesus healed him and sent him on his way and then he died and went to hell. That's not his story. His story is Jesus took care of the first need first. Jesus first said, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus dealt with his physical. And here's the problem, brothers and sisters. Let me, I'm going to be very passionate for just a second. And just know this is straight passion just from the heart of the word of God. Oftentimes what we do, all we focus on is the physical. We focus on the physical. All of our prayer requests, just write down your prayer requests. Physical, 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 physical. And guess what? We often um, neglect the spiritual. 
And what we're saying is, God, we need you to heal our loved ones, our friends. Heal them, God. And then when he does, we're content for them to live, be healed, and die, and go to hell. That's what we're content with. Brothers and sisters, our ultimate prayer needs to be to follow the very heart of God. That first and foremost, what our loved ones need, what our friends need, what this world needs is the forgiveness of God. That's what their greatest need is. And Jesus gives this man the greatest gift ever. And the point of the whole story, the point of this whole story is either Jesus is a blasphemer or he's God. Either he's the one who can forgive sins or he can't. If Jesus can put away sin, then he's God. If he can't put away sin, he's a fraud, he's a deceiver, he's a blasphemer, and he's deserving of death. There's no middle ground here. But what we know is this, the, the power of Christ is ultimate because it points to him as God. He is God. So the needs of man are urgent. The power of Christ is ultimate, which leads us to the third truth, which is this. The faith of man is unfolding. The faith of man is unfolding. So just think about the faith of these men. The entire story unfolds the way that it does because of the faith of these men. Jesus saw their faith. Now, some people wonder, well, whose faith is Jesus rewarding in Mark 2? Is Jesus rewarding the faith of this man, um, paralyzed man? Is he rewarding the faith of these four friends? And the answer is yes. He's rewarding all of their faith. But understand this. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus ever forgive somebody without that person coming to Jesus by faith. So what we know is this paralyzed man had to come to Jesus. He understood his condition. He understood his sin. He understood what Jesus could do for him. And Jesus knew his heart and chose in that moment because of his faith to forgive him. So this was an active faith. This was a working faith. And it led to forgiveness. And it led to healing. These guys really did believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed that he had the power that he said he had. Therefore, they wouldn't relent. They wouldn't stop. They were actually driven to do something radical in order to get their friend to Jesus. And do we have friends like that? Oh, I pray that we do. I pray that we have friends like that that will do anything to get us where we need to get, to get us at the feet of Jesus and this points us to something I think that we all need to consider. Faith, if it's really faith, does not wilt in the face of obstacles. Faith doesn't give up when things get difficult. Faith doesn't run away when things get hard. Faith doesn't quit. Faith doesn't give up. Faith doesn't give way to doubt. Faith doesn't walk away when things happen the way we don't or that we never expected them to happen or when things are difficult. Faith endures. Faith keeps going and faith pleases God. Notice this. These men just didn't pray about it. They did something. They didn't just sit around and say, well, let's just pray about it and see what happens. No, they did something. They did not let difficult circumstances hinder them. They worked together. They got creative and they got their friend to Jesus. And Jesus rewarded their effort. How easy would it have been for these guys to walk up to the house and go, oh, we're not getting in the day. We'll come back tomorrow. See you later, Jesus, and go on about the way. It would have been very easy for them to do that. Look down at their friend and say, today is not your day. Sorry, sorry buddy. Uh, and go on, but that's not what they did. And here's, let me say this. What we need in the church today are stretcher bearers. 
meaning this, we need men and women of faith who will go out and bring the unsaved to Jesus. That's what we need. Why? Because there are so many in our world who are paralyzed by sin, who are paralyzed by their past, who are paralyzed by apathy, and most of these people are not going to come to Jesus unless someone takes the the corner of their stretcher and brings them to him. Which the question then becomes, what are we willing to do to bring our friends and our family to Jesus? What are we willing to do to get them to him? People, please hear this, people need Jesus. And it is our greatest privilege to bring them to him. People need Jesus and our great privilege is to bring them to him. These friends do whatever it takes to bring their friend to Jesus. By contrast, consider this. Consider the difference between these four men who were willing to do whatever it took to bring their friend to Jesus and the religious people that were in this house that stood in their way. So you have these religious people. They're church attenders. They know it all. They have all the Bible answers, all the Bible knowledge. And yet they didn't do one thing to help this man. They didn't do one thing. They were... They were all they cared about. They wanted Jesus to say something they could disagree with or they could cause a scene. They were completely oblivious to the fact that in that room were people who had spiritual needs who needed Jesus. They could care less about that. Think about this. That's that's how religious people are. Religious come. They come to places like this not to learn. They come here to argue. Religious people come here not to unite but to tear apart. Here's a great question to ask yourself. Do you leave times like this criticizing all the things that you don't like? Or do you leave times like this more concerned with the things of God? I mean, that's the question. Do you leave here criticizing everything you don't like because that's what the scribes did? Or do you leave here more concerned with the heart of God? More concerned with people coming to Him? Oh, that our faith would unfold and bring more faith. And that there would be more events in our lives that can only be explained by the supernatural. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want God to do things in our midst that only God can get the credit for? That people will say, I know Micah didn't do that because I know him. And I know Jordan didn't do that because I know him. And I know Brother Curtis had nothing to do with that because I know him. Only God could have done that and that's what we want. Right? We want to believe God in such a way. We want to step back and say, God, whatever you want to do here, do it. This isn't about our agenda, God. Our agenda will mess this thing up. We don't want to bring our agenda to the table, God. Here it is, the blank check. Do whatever you want to do here to bring glory and honor to yourself. And then believe and say, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing if God did things here that only God could get the credit for? That only he could get the credit for. That's what we want. And maybe you're here. Maybe you're sitting here in this time. And maybe all the things that have been said so far. You're still wondering. Hey what's the takeaway? How can, how can I apply this to my life? I still, I've still got nothing Micah. Well here it is. Every single one of us. Apart from Christ. Are just like that paralyzed man. The Bible says according to Romans 3. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in our fall, we have been left paralyzed. Our fall has left us completely 
paralyzed. And it affects everything we do and everything we say. We are helpless in its grip. And get this, the only way we can come to Jesus is in our helplessness. And the only way we can come to Jesus is if somebody brings us to him. And praise God, someone has brought us to him. His name is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has brought us to Jesus, has shown Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way of salvation for us. Think about it like this. We have been brought to Jesus as helpless, and in him we have been given help. We have been brought to Jesus as hopeless, and in him we have been given hope. We have been brought to Jesus in our guilt, and in him we have been forgiven. We have been set free. Let me say it real quickly and just very clearly. Our greatest need is not to be rid of our maladies. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to our maker. Our greatest need is not be, to not be set free from all of our sickness. Our greatest need is to be face-to-face with our Savior. And that is what we have in him. Jesus has come to us. He has revealed himself to us. And he is still able today to forgive us, to take our sin, to cast it from the east, as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. That is our greatest need. And therefore, we have a Savior who does for us what we can never do for ourselves. I pray today, if you're in this place and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you've never seen yourself under the the guilt of your own sin, you've never seen yourself deserving of the wrath of God that you would today. And that you would realize that your hope is not within you. Your hope is in someone, a Savior, who has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And that you would call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. That you would repent of your sin, turn from your sin, turn from trusting in yourself, and turn in faith to Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and maybe you just like the scribes. You focus on everything else and you have somehow lost focus on the one thing that matters, which is people who need Jesus. Oh, that today God would reignite in our hearts a passion for those who don't know him. That we would understand if nothing changes, they will live and they will die apart from him and be apart from him forever. And may that not be something we want to live with. May that be something that we attack, that we do whatever possible. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to call the musicians forward as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration. And let's pray together. Father, in this moment, God, we are weak. You are strong. We can't, God. You can and you have. Lord, I pray first and foremost for any person in this room today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they understand their sinfulness before you, a holy God. That they would understand, God, that they cannot, ever, cannot do anything to save themselves. And the only thing that we can do to be saved is to trust what Jesus has done for us. May today be a day that they turn from their sin, turn from their self, and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting Him as their Savior and their Lord. Father, I pray for others in this room, God, that... Maybe, we, maybe we're in the room with Jesus, but maybe we don't have the heart of Jesus. And may today be a day that you change our hearts, God. Change our hearts. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. 
God, break our hearts for what breaks your heart. Lord, help us to care about the things that you care about. May the concerns of your heart, God, be our concerns. May the desires of your heart, God, be our desires. May the delights, God, that you experience when people come to know you, may they be our delights. Finish this time, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.